0: more time it's this week's sports illustrated tennis podcast it is wednesday in the u.s thursday in australia but we don't have to do that conversion anymore the 2021 australian open is in the books and to wrap up the tournament and spin the tennis calendar forward in this crazy season i'm joined by jamie jamie nice to uh, be in the same time zone as you for the first time in a
1: while how are you i'm good how's it going welcome back
0: thank you i'm uh, Honestly, it's not really jet lag per se. I'm still a little off from having uh, woken up at 3.30 a.m. Eastern, uh, 12.30 Pacific time to watch these finals, um, which we can can talk about that going forward. I think this is a uh, it, part, part of what makes the Australian Open fun to follow from the United States, but also a bit problematic, uh, at least in terms of the broadcast, is just the fact that 99.9% of... Uh, the united states is asleep while these matches are going on uh but why don't why don't we just jump right in um the first major of 2021 was a weird one it's in the books i hope the uh tennis australia staff is catching up on uh some sleep they deserve uh a round of applause a beer and a week on a bench a week on a beach but um i the one one thing i did not hear was people saying boy they never should have taken this risk uh it would have been better off if we hadn't held this event and uh I think we talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, pr- predictably hard quarantines and bad Uber Eats and Bernard Tomic's girlfriend uh washing her own hair that all sort of molted like uh like snake skin and we were left with Novak Djokovic and Naomi Osaka winning majors which seemed like a pretty normal place to be on the final weekend of uh of the first major of the year.
1: Definitely. I uh, I totally agree. I think all in all, beyond the, as always, like you said, the strange and difficult to watch time zone and and broadcast times, um, it was the tournament sort of ended up as as one might have predicted. Definitely, in the case of the men's side with with Novak Djokovic, I mean, nine Australian Opens, as uh, Medvedev called it or called called him as well as the rest of the big three cyborgs in the best way possible um i mean it's it's incredible and i think you know he medvedev is is part of that next gen younger gen generation but even he said you know i'm i'm 25 years old and to win nine australian opens i would need to win every year until i'm 34 and he kind of said you know i'm i'm confident i believe in myself but come on that's a little crazy and so just puts it into perspective and it's really interesting to hear a huge big time player on the men's side to have that sort of perspective about Djokovic and and the big three.
0: If you were to do that just keep him you know if we play along with this silly hypothetical and he wins every Australian Open until he's 34 years old he would still be at only half the hall of Novak Djokovic's overall majors. And of course right. would be less than half of, of Federer Nadal. I think we are in for a serious reset in terms of tennis math. I mean, the, there's one male player under the age of 30 that's won a major right now. And that's Dominic Team, who won his when Nadal didn't play, Federer didn't play and, and Novak Djokovic uh, was defaulted. Um, yeah, it's going to be, I mean, we can, we can jump ahead to Osaka in a bit. Uh, people talking about, well, she won double digit majors. Um, we are in for a major sort of math recalibration when, uh, when these three Titans leave because they're winning everything in sight. And we're going to go back to the days when a player winning three or four, you know, Jim, Jim Courier won four majors and had a great career. And got to number one, was a no brainer hall of famer. Um, that's where we're going to revert to the mean pretty soon here. And uh, people going to tennis matches and expecting to see players win double digit majors are going to be disappointed. Um, What did you make of that final? I mean, going into them, I I think it was one, one of the reasons it was a weird match. I think to a lot of us was, you know, Medvedev had come in on this crazy win streak. He had absolutely blown out his quarterfinal and semifinal opponents. He beat Djokovic last time they played I think with the odds makers which um you know which I always say is not one guy with a cigar making a prediction I mean the odds makers reflect what the betting public is is doing with their money Medvedev was a favorite to win that match he didn't win a set what uh, what do you make of the final
1: yeah you know I think we at the beginning of the tournament we had our first podcast you know you know after the first week and we talked about Djokovic and that that abdominal injury, that muscle injury that he diagnosed. And it was, it was a big question whether or not, you know, that was going to be affecting him. If that could, you know, derail his, his quest for for number nine in Australia. And I think um, in the final, he just, after everything he's been through, I mean, after the year, uh, even, you know, going back to the U S open and, and, uh, the French Open, I, I think he really needed this, and if there was any place for him to win, it was here. And I'm not sure anything Medvedev did would have uh, stopped him. You know, I, I it just now, of course, it adds to Djokovic's major hall overall. And for him, there really is no place like Melbourne. Um, even after all the different obstacles he had to go through, um, I think this was. This is, if, if you were Djokovic, this is how he planned it out.
0: If uh, we, we were talking about this, um, I got I have two things I'll, I'll steal from our sort of tennis channel group chat. Uh, one of them was, if you're Medvedev, do you say to yourself, hey, great, I beat Rublev and I beat Tsitsipas and I'm going to another major final and Novak in Melbourne is almost at the level of Nadal in Paris, too good. Hey, I'm ranked number three in the world. I just turned 25 years old. Life's good. Or do you say, boy, I really was gearing up to win this thing. I thought I had Djokovic's number. He was a little bit injured. I was on this 20 match win streak. Last time I made a major final, the 2019 U.S. Open, I pushed Nadal deep into a fifth set and I really got outclassed in my final. When when Medvedev takes inventory of this event, uh, what are, what are his emotions and uh, to what extent is he proud versus disappointed? Then um, the second, well, why don't we do that first? And then I'll give yeah. you the second uh, topic we are discussing. What do you think?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting perspective. I think I go back to, to what I said right at the beginning, which is his, you know, post-match interview. And he, he was asked about the big three and, and Djokovic and, everything. And I think that perspective might um, give us some insight into how he'll walk away from this. Of course, I think if you're talking about um, straight match statistics, and just if he, he looks back at how he played, um, he'll he'll be frustrated. But I think when he looks at it overall, um, and he really understands the dominance and, and the the gravity of nine Australian Opens. I, I think he is sort of kind of shrugging his shoulders and, and just saying, you know what, too good. Like you said, what, what are your thoughts?
0: I think there's a, a collective low threshold now for, for moral victories. And it's sort of like, you know what, God, God bless these three guys. And I think before we talk about the shortcomings of everyone else, we just need to acknowledge how good they are. Sometimes that gets shortchanged better than all Djokovic are just absolutely, you know, we, we say generational but there's three of them in one generation but they're just tremendous at what they do and they are tremendous mentally and they are tremendous in terms of their organization during matches and they conduct their careers like professionals like let's let's give these guys their due before we start picking apart the competition but I think we're at the point now as fans and I think this trickles down to the players where you know what enough of the moral victories enough of the consolation prizes are you going to take one of these guys down or not and we've all sat through I'm getting closer and I feel like I made some progress this tournament and I'm pleased with how I competed Novak was just too good Rafa was just too good I think we're all at the point of like is someone going to step up and take one of these guys down or is everyone just playing for second place here and I think that redounds to the players And my suspicion is, especially Medvedev, who seems much more of a sort of a a plain speaking realist, maybe than other players. (laughs) I I think I think he says, "Listen, I I didn't come here to get a second place trophy." And playing as well as I did, to see it just kind of go to hell in the final, and also the way you know he lost that first—you know, tight first set, five all. Everyone's you know they're holding serve and a couple of shots here and there. Djokovic really did what he does so well and almost stole that first set. And then Medvedev just completely retreated. So I I think some of it is a result and some of it is the fact that he just didn't compete particularly well in the final. He lost that first set. It was all, it all went very quickly too. I mean, some of this is about uh, the lack of ball kids to help you towel off. But for for Novak Djokovic, the, the 30 ball bounce between serve Novak Djokovic to play a match in a major final, that was only about two hours that's really remarkable. So I, I think some of it, to, to your question, I think Medvedev is disappointed. And I think some of it is he didn't leave with the big trophy. And some of it is the way he competed and didn't even get a set. Um, I mean, the other question that we talked about, which was a bit of a hypothetical, was I, I think we all kind of missed this storyline a little bit, was a lot was riding on this for Djokovic. If, if he doesn't win, he, you know, loses the event that he's always counted on winning. He's no longer the defending champion it will have meant that he didn't make any inroads on this, you know, it would have been still 2017, maybe even 2117. and Nadal won. He wouldn't have made these, these goat inroads. The French open is next, which is the event where he was, you know, b- barely mustered a fight against Nadal. This, this was a really big tournament for him. That is, as you say, um, you know, Me- Melbourne is his his second home and this is where he's won half of his majors, but he really needed to win this event. And you can only imagine when he had that abdominal injury against Taylor Fritz, you can only imagine what was going through his head, which is not just, boy, now this is imperiled, but the French Open is next, and Nadal's likely to now take a four-major lead over me. And suddenly, his historically, the U.S. Open looms larger. It will have been, you know, then it would have been 18 months in between majors when he's supposed to be in the prime of his career. All, all of which is to say is, I think we all shortchanged how big a win this was for Novak Djokovic, and now how he goes forward. He's he's back within two of the all time race. He's now won nine Australian Opens. He's only solidifies his number one ranking. This was really a, a big win for Novak Djokovic, uh, especially given what happened at his last two majors.
1: For sure, it makes me think about uh, something you wrote in your. Your mailbag this week, which was uh, the longer that the big three reign, and the older that the rest of the field gets, the more pressure is put on the challengers, not the champions. And I, I, I totally agree, and I think that's why for Medvedev, it's he walks away from this match, yes, being disappointed, yes, being frustrated with himself, but the the pressure uh, in that match, particularly, I think was on him more so than on Djokovic because while Djokovic needed this more than ever and it and to your point he he really um it would have been a big deal had he not gotten this title um I think that he was comfortable in that space I think when someone who's won so much in one place and and He's been there before so many times, and I think that ultimately, um, you know, Dominic Team has, has talked about it a little bit, but that ultimately, I think, really helps these players, Djokovic knowing that he has five sets if he needs it, and he's been here before, and he's taken down, um, you know, some of his biggest challengers. I, I think that just it's a, it's a little bit of an, an, a mental edge, I just think, that, that really gives them, the champions, the, the advantage.
0: It's, it's funny how uh, – and this is also part of being a champion. It's, it's funny how Djokovic – and, you know, N- Nadal is a master at this as well. How the hell they – you know, hey, the pressure's on him. It's on on me. I'm the underdog. Uh, it's funny how in the <laughs> run-up to the match, uh, Djokovic sort of was, was happy to pass off his opponent as the favorite. Hey, look, I've got nothing to lose. Uh, I could retire tomorrow, and it's a great career. Um,
1: That's such I to a think... mental exercise, though, for mm-hmm. them, I think.
0: And, I mean – Oh, totally. I mean, part of this is, uh, part of this is kind of organizing and just sort of managing the situation, but part of this also is at some level, you know, and Nadal is uh, a king at this too. Athletes tell themselves narratives and really, I think in a lot of cases believe them um, that are in, in furtherance of their career that are in service of their career. And if, you know, Nadal thinks every, Every opponent, is he's, he's one bad service day away from getting knocked out of the tournament. And he's convinced himself that the guy on the other side of the net is always, you know, he's, he's going to be lucky to beat this guy. And it's, it's served him very well. And we saw Djokovic doing a bit of the same thing. And I think the way you manage, discuss, and have a relationship with physical injury is part of that, too. I mean, I'm not sure it didn't help Djokovic at some perverse level that he was playing hurt and could always say, you know, it wasn't about my tennis, it was about my abdominal muscle, or I'm going to concentrate on, not on the situation and not even on the opponent, but I'm going to really pay attention to my body. I mean, I think the way athletes deal with injuries is part of this too. I mean, I also think you mentioned a big element to all this, which is, we say this all the time, but it doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't make it less so. This best of three versus best of five, it's it's almost two different sports. I mean, it's almost like we need to just, divide these into two buckets and you know I know, no offense to these events but great you can take down Djokovic in a best of three indoor match in London but you know w- w- wake me when you get him in a major and same with you know great that you can that Diego Schwartzman beats Nadal in Rome it's, it's a great achievement but that ain't the same as doing it in a best of five match.
1: I think that's what these guys do I mean that's the luxury they've built is that they they have the same mentality sure go ahead beat me in Rome sure that's fine best of three uh you know you've got your hometown crowd behind you in some lead-up tournament great but when it comes down to you know my turf in this best of five I think they've they understand that advantage and um it's it's become really clear and I don't think I think the other players because it's been discussed and it's it's out there I think they realize it too and and you know, maybe it's it's putting extra pressure on them, like we said.
0: Uh, he is, is really good at best of three matches. Naomi Osaka. How's that, <laughs> how's that for a transition?
1: Um, good one.
0: Yeah, you know, obviously, we we do not have to worry about best of five on the women's side. Even even though, and maybe this is a discussion we have at another time. Um, I I rather like best of three, uh, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe we need to have the a bit more discussion about women playing best of five. I think they're certainly up to it physically um i mean it wouldn't wouldn't be my preference but i i am getting less and less uh you know more more and more open minded as as we go um but let's talk about Naomi Osaka who um you know we we talked you and i talked uh jamie after the serena match and i think one of the comments we talked about was Naomi Osaka took took that match and it was four all in the second set she played a really lousy game and then didn't lose another point but i I don't think Naomi Osaka played the match of her life to beat Serena. She, you know, she double faulted eight times. I mean, that's that's two games worth of double faults. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't necessarily think she played top shelf. I mean, it was it was very functional and pragmatic, and then it was she was able to prevail without a whole lot of drama. But I don't think she even played her best against Brady in the final. And yet here she is. She's won four of her last eight majors. I think. Rank rankings be damned. It's pretty obvious she's she's the queen of women's tennis right now. What what do you make of her ascent? Um, what do you make of her performance on uh, in the final?
1: She proved in Australia and certainly over the last few tournaments and few months that she is as dominant a player um, has been over the last two three years. um You know we we talk about women's tennis all the time and how much it contrasts to the men's side with the big three dominating everything. And with the women, we've seen so many first time, uh, major winners. We've seen so many people rise to the top that out of nowhere, or, you know, outside the top 10, top 20. And with Osaka, I think she's slowly, but surely saying, basically, as you said, I'm number one, I am no one can beat me and I think her next sort of task is going to be, of course, to win on on the grass and, and to capture Wimbledon, but I think this is going to be the start of her um, almost earning that untouchable badge, if you will. I think she really proved that she she, she's matured, she's proved that she's comfortable in the spotlight, she's proved that she can handle pressure, especially against, um, you know, someone like Serena, who she idolizes. So there's a lot of different challenges she faced in, in this tournament, and I think overall it just encapsulates how much, how, how dominant she's been over the past few years.
0: I, I almost feel bad for her because now she, she has this takedown of Serena, she wins her fourth major, she's 23 years old. She wins without playing her best and she gets her due. But then also I, on Sunday, I, I had a former player text me, like, mark my word, she's coming after Serena's record, meaning Osaka's got 20 more of these in her. Um, you know, we, um, I, I think it was, um, it was in one of the press conferences, in the transcripts, you know, Mats Volander already has her into double digits and we're already thinking like, you know, but boy, if she can uh, replicate this on clay, we have our next double-digit major champion, Uh you know, and she had a she had a nice response to that, which is kind of like, guys, easy. I'm t- let's talk about number five and not number ten. Right. But, um, but I do think there's there's a real sense across tennis that there's a new sheriff in town, and we we do this every time, right? I mean, and it's it's Garbini Muguruza, and it's I mean, I remember, Svetlana Kuznetsova won the U.S. Open, and I, I think it was a erotic in, and, and i got to check that in, in 2003, maybe and it was sort of like you may not know her name now but trust me this is a player that you're going to be hearing a lot from for the next 10 years. I mean, we always do this when we have a new champion but this seems like a different level. Um, I you know I mean the, you, the you, you train, wish her well it's all there but who knows.
1: The hype train is rolling and I mean I, I think can. it's it's certainly justified but I I agree, um, you know, with everyone to not jump from 5 to 10 to 20 to 23. uh, You know, we've got a long way to go. And I think um, it's, it's going to happen regardless. But I think there are many challenges ahead for her. But that doesn't take away from what she's proven, how much she's improved, how much she's matured, and how much she's really growing into a player who seems like she will be at you know in in this number one number two spot for a while and and I think maybe in a a year two years or so maybe the uh, overall state of women's tennis in terms of it being so so many different number ones and major winners maybe she becomes that that standard figure at the top and the rest of the people are shuffling around who knows
0: yeah, I, I, think, I think that's a good point, too, because I think a lot of this optimism, yeah, it, it's about her results, and it's about four majors now, and it's about, you know, beating Serena in straight sets and a big match, and, but I, I do think a lot of this is about this leap in maturity and the fact that um, she really has presented herself as someone who has the constitution to be a, a global superstar. She's someone who has the constitution of being number one in the world without turning into a diva or somehow, you know, um, somehow uh, doing things that are adverse to her, to her tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was, a, I don't know if you saw the clip going on, going around, uh, so, someone had posted the clip of her trophy presentation ceremony when she won Indian Wells um, in 2018. And, you know, she she started out by saying, this is gonna be the worst speech ever. <laughs> and it was someone who you know clearly was not especially confident or comfortable in, in the public situation like that and you compare that to her her speech and her graciousness and her, her press conferences in australia and i think a lot of the optimism is as much about emotional growth as it is forehands and athleticism and and having a big serve I don't, I don't know if you caught the um the the jen jennifer <laughs> I, I, I resist calling it a controversy but the the meme uh
1: Yes.
0: If you you caught that. Um, Yeah. uh, You know, the the pity of it to me was like it was really a a cool and, you know, it was it was a poised move to make. She just didn't stick the landing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know. And I think, you know, she she tweeted after the fact, you know, like, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. And I I, I mentioned this last time, but, you know, it's it's kind of endearing in a way. Um, You know, I think some people thought it was a a dig and she was really you know digging the knife in but i i don't think it was i think it it might have really just been a a slip you know something she she didn't realize she did but um it it just goes to show you kind of how again how how normal she is and she's she's really relatable and i think that will only help her going forward as she kind of climbs this ladder and continues to win and continues to be in the spotlight. You know, I mean, we've seen it with so many players. And of course, Serena and, and the big three, and they have more than ever Sharapova. I mean, there's so many people who have, um, you know, become as, as global and as, uh, you know, transcending of stars, as I think she's on her way to, and she's still so young. So a lot more to see and to come from Osaka, I believe.
0: It's really interesting too, because None of these are the same. Um, You know, I I did a piece for Tennis Channel during the tournament, Jennifer Capriati, who won 20 years, you know, in in 2001. And it was this great redemption. Um, You know, she she was 14 years old. I mean, that's a a full decade almost younger than Naomi Osaka, who was more than a decade younger than Serena. Um, So, you know, a a 14-year-old is not analogous. And Serena Williams had a ton of challenges and pressures, but she also had a, a big sister there who could who could cushion that and other players have had sort of national pressures and, and Maria Sharapova one way she you know she she didn't make any meaningful headway against Serena so no one really saw her she, she ended up winning you know whatever she won five majors and won the career slam but no one really saw her as the number one player because there was always Serena Williams who absolutely owned her head to head I mean all of these circumstances are different, but between the sort of tri-nation, I mean, Naomi Osaka is really this multinational star and there's an element of culture and there's an element of race. And now we have, thanks to what happened in August, there's this social justice component. It really is, I mean, they're all unique sets of circumstances. She is going to have both advantages and challenges that no other player has had. But I just think she's really emerged and you know if if you put if, if you were buying stock in a, a never mind a tennis player in a professional athlete right now um boy is naomi osaka poised well on on every dimension for uh for the future she just yeah. i mean she seems she seems there she's a commercial success her athleticism is tremendous and only gets better her win-loss record i mean she hasn't she lost a match and i mean the, the last match she lost was at fed cup to sarah tarita Torm- tormo in um yeah, you know it was basically 12 months ago so it's it's all uh everything's everything's coming up roses for naomi
1: yeah i was gonna highlight your on every dimension comment because i think it goes beyond the tennis which um we've seen and and discussed with so many players that maybe they don't have that call it a complete package whatever you want to call it but she really there are so many different levels like you said so if if she's a stock and you're looking at all the different, um, you know, parts of the business. I think that, uh, you know, for her, there's, there's a bright future on, like you said, on so many levels.
0: Um, sidebar for two seconds. Were were you reading it all about, about, uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. And his, his signing with the Padres.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we had lots of stories on SI.com about it, or at least a few.
0: Um, did, did you capture, did you, did you catch that um, th- there was a group that had basically invested in it's sort of like a venture capital firm, had basically invested in his career as if it were, uh, as if it were a stock? I mean, I think this is my, my sidebar is sometimes we, we talk about athletes in terms of upside and, and payoff and it all seems a little, you know, and who's, who buy, sell, hold, and it all seems a little bit crass. But here, here was a case where a prominent athlete actually was securitized. And people who invested in Fernando Tatis Jr. are now being paid off literally. And it's not just an analogy. Um, I wonder if uh, this isn't something that tennis could take advantage of. Because I think there are players, A, that could use the, what is an effect, start of capital. There are players that could use angel investments. And for as often as we talk about, you know, oh, I want to put all my money on Felix. Or I I want to load up on, you know, whatever, Coco Golf. Um, I wonder if there isn't a market like this for tennis players. It would be that's interesting. My, uh, that's my sidebar for the day. It would be interesting. It would, it would
1: it, right? I think the um the the company or or the firm um they they use like an algorithm, right? And it it, it talks about the performance and the earning potential and everything. And so uh, it's interesting, of course. We always talk about the difference between team sport and, and individual sport. And so for tennis, it would be it would be really interesting for one being an individual sport two, such a global sport with so many uh different players from all over the world and and three because the structure of the tours and the majors and um the the scheduling and we always talk about uh you know how how draining and how injuries are so common because of how long the you know the the, the two-week off season of tennis i mean so many things um as compared to your example with baseball, are so different. So it would be, it would be really interesting, very very uh, intriguing exercise for tennis.
0: And, um, you know, and then the other thing I would say is uh, what, we, what we've seen vividly over the past year is players need the money. Um, yeah, the, the same way that your entrepreneurial startup and that uh, your tech idea needs financing as well, if you're not a top 10 player, I mean, I, I was impressed, happy and surprised by, for example, the big names that have been playing uh, that, that played the simultaneous event last week at Melbourne park. Um, this, this Phillip Island trophy and, you know, Sophia Kenyon and Andrescu and, you know, Petra Martic, And sure that was about matches, but also they are clearly players who are thinking in terms of, I, I haven't been paid a lot lately. I, I need these earning opportunities. Um, I think there are a lot of players that might be open to that idea just because if, if you're not a top 10 player you're you're thinking about your finances and you might need uh you know again the, the equivalent of startup capital um anyway let's uh let's spin forward we have a uh you know we have a full full slate of events uh this week we just had uh, the entry list for the the miami open which will go on it will not be played on the big Football stadium. It will have a significant reduction of prize money because of the drop in attendance. But the good news is, you know, there will be a a big event. Roger Federer is scheduled to play. Nadal, Djokovic. I mean, uh, tennis persists. Any thoughts on uh, what this sport should look like, will look like, and uh, where where this is going in the time of COVID? Before we get to uh, before we go get to the French Open, the next major.
1: Yeah, it should be interesting. Um, you know, as you said, the the Miami Open will continue. They they won't be in in Hard Rock Stadium, but they will have fans. I think is is what I read. Um, I'm not sure how many, but they will have fans. So I think it's it's going to be interesting. Obviously, the the U.S. Open was completely without fans, and so um, as the, as the tour continues on. In the spring and as we you know gear up for the majors and I think as these players travel more and as the you know during the summer there's a lot of back-to-back tournaments I think it's just going to be um you know I think as we see with other sports with you know you've got people on the COVID reserve list or um you know so and so is is in quarantine or whatever it is I think we're going to start to see some of that um on the tour as as players continue to travel and I think um, one of the big points that is also interesting with tennis is just that everyone's sort of on their own. You know, the, the, the team plane is not flying to the Miami open. Um, I'm sure a lot of players will travel together coming from the same places as they normally do, but um, that lack of that, that team experience and then that team safety uh, I think will be an interesting factor as, as the schedule kind of moves on through throughout this year.
0: We can only hope that uh, Pfizer and Moderna keep doing their thing because, uh, I mean, the other the other point there is just different players come from different countries with different right. COVID rates and different policies, and different events are held in different countries with different COVID rates and different policies. Um, so, yeah, it'll, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens when we get to to Western Europe. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. At the, I mean, the French Open is... It's it's on the books, it's gonna happen. I think it's just a question of circumstance and I think the same to some extent at at Wimbledon as well. Will there be you know, we we did not and neither did ESPN broadcast from Melbourne. There was uh, you know, obviously not a full complement of fans. I don't know when we will have a full complement of fans. I don't know I don't know how you feel about even the the US Open. I don't know, Jay. I mean you you and I live you and I live in the area. Are we six months away from uh, you know, eight eight hundred thousand fans? over 14 days going to a tennis event, I don't okay.
1: know. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about that in, in terms of the Olympics, which of course is still, I guess in the balance, although um, as, as far as we know, so far it's it's still on. So I think that's the other big thing on the tennis calendar that always um, impacts tournaments and players' schedules and, and decision-making. And so, um, again, I, I'm not sure. I am a little bit hesitant about, um, the Olympics and and attending only because of what we've heard in terms of quarantine periods and, uh, sort of restrictions for, for people, um, you know, for media people at least, um, but also for athletes. So I don't know. Um, it was very strange to see, see fans in Australia, but, um, you were taking that with a grain of salt, so to speak, because knowing the situation there versus here. So, um, I don't know, six months is a long time, but, uh, I'm not sure if a full U.S. Open with fans is is the best approach. At least, at least from for now.
0: <laughs> we will uh, we will have someone on USTA next week, and we'll we'll talk about that. I also think, broken um, our as we close up and uh, await our next zooms. I, I do think the Olympics will be really interesting to see which tennis players show up and which don't. Um, mm-hmm. I heard from from an agent that some players are trying to have you know the olympics are included sometimes in in contracts and endorsement contracts they expect players to play the majors and the olympics um even without uh i mean even, even though you can't necessarily have branding and passages that you ordinarily would uh but why did tennis players play the olympics i mean for for different reasons and sometimes you know Tennis players are the flag bearers, and sometimes uh, you know it's it's patriotism, but I think a lot of it is for the experience and for the camaraderie and for the uh, you know it's just the the Olympics are so different from a run of the mill tour event. Well, if you can't have fans and you're going to have all these COVID protocols, and exactly. again, the, the vast majority of the Japanese population doesn't even want the Olympics to be staged. Um, this is not going to be the the fun, happy exactly. Sydney, Athens, London, to some extent, Rio Games. This is going to be a different kind of Olympics, and I wonder, you know, does picking a name out of the hat? Does, does Serena Williams really want to go through this, given the absence of fans and given, uh, you know, that the athletes' village is not going to be the athletes' village in, in COVID times? So it's going to be interesting to see what, you know, a, a year ago we were all talking about eligibility and and which players could possibly get left off. And it was just an assumption that sort of every player, um, I think Dominic team, notwithstanding, you know, every top player was going to show up. I don't know if that's going to be the case in 2021. Um, We shall see. Anyway, uh, Jamie, always a pleasure. Um, I know you, you have to run, I have to run, Uh, but good to catch up. And um, let's, Do another one of these next week.
1: Definitely. Sounds good. Thanks so much.
0: All right. Thank you to Jamie, as always, uh, for her conversation. Thanks to you for listening. Um, Again, we will have a a USTA guest next week, Um, but keep the suggestions coming. Um, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe, leave a review. It always helps. And uh, have a good week, everyone. Take care.